Whether you like it or not, have you ever wondered about the origins of daylight savings time? The history, the context, and the early criticisms of DST? David Perrow has written an interesting book where he explores this topic in depth, and the stories are eye-opening. The book is Seize the Daylight, our topic on this edition of CFO Bookshelf. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. A shout out to a recent guest, Lindsay Weber of the software firm Quantrix. She recommended David Perrault's book, so I checked it out, and that's how this episode came to be. Now, as I'm reading Seizing the Daylight, I'm wondering, okay, David, what did you want to do as a grown-up, a student of time? So my first question was about how he became fascinated with daylight savings time. Well, actually, that's the one question I always get. It's a, because it's an unusual uh, topic to be uh, an expert in. But anyway, here, here's what happened. Many years ago, I was working for the U.S. government as a, uh, I have a PhD in computer science and I do computer science research. I was doing that for the U.S. government and I got involved and I became a major contributor to what turned out to be the largest study ever of the effects of daylight saving time. So we were looking into how daylight saving time affected energy usage, motor vehicle accidents, crime, a lot of other things. While I was doing that, I got curious about uh, daylight saving time and its history. And I spoke to the people, including the other people in the government that were involved with time. Nobody knew anything about it. So being a researcher type, I started looking into it. And I found that it had a very interesting history going all the way back to 1784 and Benjamin Franklin. A lot of contention, a lot of interesting anecdotes. So I started collecting them, and that's how I got originally involved in in daylight saving time. I read a lot of narrative nonfiction. I was mentioning that to you before we hit record. I like reading history. And as I'm reading, I'll be wondering, this author, this reporter, this journalist, they had to put in a lot of time for this research. And I'm as I'm going through this book, I mean, you're going from the beginning to the current day, the present. How in the world did it, how much time did it take you to do this research? Five years? Six? Well, what happened was I, uh, as I said, worked on this, this project for the government for over three years. Came out with several reports and uh, influenced some of the government uh, decisions on daylight saving time. And while I was doing that, I was collecting uh, history and actives. And then I kept doing that as I got into other areas for years, thinking someday maybe it'd be nice to put this stuff all together, but I never did it. And then maybe after 20 years of collecting random stuff at random times, I wound up having some time. And I said, maybe this is the time that I should try to put this together into a book. Well, it took out, it took a lot more work than I thought to do that, even though I had I collected all this information. And uh, it took two solid years of, of, of research and uh, writing to, to uh, finally get that. And I, was, uh, I, I spent a lot of time looking into some of the most minute things, but I, I was very interested in it. So it was, it was fun for me. And uh, that's what happened. So it took, uh, I would say, 20 years of gathering some stuff and then two solid years of, of hard research and, and writing to to finish it. You made me think of something. You say you have an IT background. There is a famous book. I don't know if it was published in the 80s or maybe slightly later in the 90s. It's called The Mythical Man Month. And, and I know at one time, a lot of IT people in the early 90s that was like one of the, their, that was their Bible. I just find it interesting here. you a book about time and then an IT background and this book in my head called the mythical man month. That's a topic for another day. I want to read, if you don't mind, David, I want to read something that's in the introduction. And th- this is a great, if, if there's a trailer, whatever be a trailer for this book, this needs to be in it. Uh, Benjamin Franklin conceived of it. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle endorsed it. Winston Churchill campaigned for it. Kaiser Wilhelm first employed it. 
Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt went to war with it. And more recently, the United States fought an energy crisis for it. What a great way to set up the book. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. That was a, as you know, sometimes the beginning and the ending take a lot longer than the middle because the middle is is more more following the story. But then you have to think of an interesting beginning. I did not know this. So in the first chapter, you talk about this story of Ben Franklin waking up. I'm going to have you repeat it if you don't mind. But I thought that story was somewhat apocryphal with maybe shreds or grains of truth to it. But it sounds like this story I'm going to have you relate to us is true. Can you share that, Ben Franklin, waking up uh, in a Paris, I believe, Paris hotel? Yes, it uh, it uh, it is true. It, it, the, the what happened was he, he 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 this incident happened, and he wrote a whimsical uh, letter to the editor of one of the Paris newspapers about it. Well, let me just start. Benjamin Franklin, 1784, was the U.S. ambassador to France, living in Paris. And he was 78 years old. But he was still very active uh, going to diplomatic affairs and events and staying up very late at night. Uh, and uh, then sleeping late every morning. He would sleep till about noon every morning. Well, one day a noise woke him up at about 8 a.m. And he saw the light shining through his window. And he says in this uh, letter to the newspaper that he was uh, he realized that he's sleeping for several hours each morning through the daylight that's lighting his house for free. And then in the evening, when he wants to stay up late, he has to light his house with expensive and smoky candles. And uh, so wouldn't it be nicer if he and everybody else in Paris woke up early, a little closer to sunrise, and made better use of the free daylight that's there rather than uh, have to use candles? So that was really his his basic premise, and that was that was serious, even though the, the letter that he wrote wasn't because he didn't really have a mechanism to do that. He suggested some whimsical things, like having a tax on shutters to, so people would have to let the sun through their light, window and maybe wake them up. And his uh, most uh, interesting one to me was he suggested having a cannon go off every morning at sunrise in every square in Paris to wake everybody up. Probably didn't go over too well. Yeah, neither of those ever happened. And so though we had the idea, the idea, the basic idea of daylight saving time is to try to move the hours of human activity to make the best use of daylight. And so he had that general concept, but he didn't have a mechanism to do it. It wasn't for many years later until that happened. I call this a case of uncommon common sense. He may have been the first person to do the math on the save and you you share this in the book you you stated that so many can- candles would not need to be lit or used and he projected about 200 million dollars in savings in today's dollars so he thought this through this wasn't just some idea to appeal to just it's like there is practical pragmatic benefit doing this cost savings right he he tried to estimate if people would all wake up at sunrise instead of uh when they do now or when they were doing it at that point he tried to estimate by taking the number of people that lived in paris and trying to figure out how many of them are waking up would be waking up how many hours per per year they how many, they would save of candles how much a candle would cost to do that and he figured that all out and as you said he came to this number of, of 200 million in in, a, uh, in today's dollars now of course that was a very quick estimate not getting into a lot right. of detail but still it just showed you the kind of benefit that you might have from from something like getting up earlier before we go much further, I want to make something very, very clear. And I bet you and your publisher discussed the title at length, I bet, because this is not just a book on DST, Daylight Savings Time. You also bring up the history of time measurement. You talk about the history of time pieces, clocks. Uh, you talk about something I did not know. I did not know about the time zone system in the United States. 
so this book is more than just daylight savings time. And again, I congratulate you for pulling all of this together. Did you, was that a little bit of a debate on what to call it? Because again, it's not just DST. Well, I think the the primary thing in the book, I mean, most of the book is about the history of DST, but there is that uh, a lot of interesting information I found. Well, I got into it myself. I didn't really know much about uh, the establishment of the time zones and other things like that, what mean time meant and, uh, and how, and going all the way back to the Egyptians, uh, how, uh, you know, the time was measured, uh, throughout history, but I thought it would be interesting to have a, at least part of the book going all the way back before we got to actual daylight saving time. And so I, uh, to me, it was, and so we were, we were happy. I think we were happy with the title because that's the primary focus, but there's a lot more, as you said, which I appreciate that you're interested in. The, if, if you were at any event where you're speaking, I have this image of you asking the audience, when did daylight savings time first start? And I don't know if you've ever have asked an audience that question, if you have, do most people say, I don't know? Most, you know, most people don't know anything. As I said, I was dealing with people who were working uh, for years with the time. Uh, and the time is there. There is a part of the government that's worried about time. And uh, there's people that that's their primary job. And other people like the people on the project I was working on had spent three years studying daylight saving time. None of them knew anything about uh anything historic, how long it's been around, where it came from, what were the pros and cons that were talked about in the, in the past. So that was, that made it interesting when I started researching that area. So I'm going to ask you, every podcaster has asked you this question, even though I know the answer, it's in the book. I, again, I didn't know it myself, but what country first instituted daylight savings time and why? My second question is going to be, well, who came next? Which I just think is ridiculous. It should have been the other way around. But I'll let you answer the first question. Okay. Who and why first? Well, here's what happened. I mean, there was, uh, first, let me go quickly. There was a New Zealander in the 1890s who had the idea of moving the clocks forward. But that nothing ever came from that. He was sort right. of laughed at by most of the people there. So the main person that came up with the idea of the, of the daylight same time we have today is a man named William Willett, who was Brit British uh, builder who lived outside of um, London. And every morning he'd wake up at about sunrise and go out for a horseback ride in his, in his area uh, and then go back and then go back home and, and go get, go to work in London. And while he was out horseback riding every morning in his beautiful spring and summer mornings, he found that nobody else was up and it was so beautiful in the early spring and summer. Uh, <clears throat> and yet everybody's asleep. Well, the shutters were closed. Almost nobody's on the street. And so it bothered him. And he considered the, and he, the, the title that he used for what he wound up writing was called the waste of daylight because he felt that that beautiful daylight was being wasted. And so he had the idea of moving the clocks forward uh, in the, in the spring and summer. And that would allow use of the daylight that's that's already there that people are sleeping through, and it wound up the uh, effect was to have an extra hour of daylight in the evening, which allowed people to have daylight when uh, they got home from work. Anyway, so he proposed it to Parliament in nineteen oh eight, and there was a bill in Parliament, and, and there was a, co a committee looked into it, and however, Parliament eventually rejected it. But William Willett was not a person to be dissuaded. So he uh, proposed it again in 1909, 1910, all the way up to 1915. And in 1915, he passed away. And people thought that was the end of his idea because right. he was the main proponent of it. However, word of his idea had spread around Europe. And in 1916, in the middle of World War One, the Germans thought about using it as a way to save energy for the war effort by having more daylight in the evening uh, on the factory. So they wouldn't have to use uh, uh, coal-fired energy to uh, light the factories for another hour in the 
in the evening. So they put in, so it was the Germans, even though it was a British idea, it was the Germans, their enemy in World War I, who put, first put in daylight saving time in, in April 1916. Well, the the British, who had been kicking around this this proposal for eight years and never passing it, as soon as the Germans put it in their enemy, they put it in less than a, a month later. So if they if they think eight years and not doing anything, once the Germans put it in, they said, "Well, they're not going to use our idea, and we're not going to use it." So they put it in. Well, once the Ger- once the Germans and the British uh, started using daylight saving time, World War One, then almost all the other participants on on one side on on one side or the other the Allies of the Germans, the allies of the British, all put in daylight saving time as well. And that's when it started during World War One. When the US got involved with World War One, 1916, we started talking about going on to daylight saving time. We wound up doing it in 1918. So that's when we uh got into daylight saving time. The next time I'm in London, I don't know when it will be, I'm mm-hmm. gonna do an informal survey. Now I'll do it only for adults, uh maybe right. people 30 or older. Have you heard of William Willett? And I would hope that the answer would be yes. I hope there are a statue or two of him in your great country. Uh, just what a phenomenal. And it was sad that he did not get to see this come to fruition. Right. right. Was, he had fought for, for a long time, used a lot of his money, a lot of his extra free time beyond his job. And uh, he never saw it come to. And then a year later, after he died, it became worldwide. So it's on. Un, it's unfortunate. There is a there is a statue to to him in his in his hometown. And it, what it is, it's it's a sundial set one hour early. Interesting. Daylight saving time. And so that's very nice. And originally, when daylight saving time was passed in Britain, some people called it Willa time. But I think by now he's mostly forgotten. And this talk, I just was speaking to some people about having a a, a big statue of him in London, but hasn't been done yet. I, I could almost see Netflix now coming up with some fascinating docu-series on him uh-huh. of his life. Moving on, and I know you're not a journalist uh, by trade, so I don't feel uncomfortable asking you this. Some journalists, they just want to tell the facts maybe not reveal their opinion. David, are you a little surprised that after World War I, some of these countries went back and they discontinued daylight savings time? I mean, it worked. It served its purpose, but yet some of these countries, they reverted back to the way it was. Did did that surprise you a little? Uh, No, because a lot of people thought of it as a wartime measure. And in a wartime, you can afford to do something that's – slightly unpleasant for you. So it it the farmers didn't like it because it put them out of sync with everybody else. Because the farmers basically had to follow the sun. When the sun rose, they could they could go farming. When the sun wasn't up, they couldn't. And so they had to go by the sun regardless of what the clock said. So when you had daylight saving time and, and other outdoor workers as well, uh it put them out of sync with everybody else. So they didn't like it, but it was a war and everybody said, well, you got to make sacrifices for the war. Nobody complained much about it during the war. When the war was over, a lot of people said, let's uh, go back to what we had before because it's not wartime anymore. And in the U.S., for example, which at that time was very rural dominated, dominated by rural people, uh, not more than urban people, uh, Congress was bombarded with... uh, uh, letters and telegrams from people all around the country asking them to um, uh, repeal the daylight saving time that was used during the war. What happened was Congress repealed it. President Woodrow Wilson vetoed the repeal. But then there was enough support in Congress that they overrode his veto. And so daylight saving time was was uh, taken out after World War One by overriding the veto of the president, which is a very unusual uh, thing to happen. But that's what happened. My my interpretation of the United States in this entire story is that they were slow. And maybe it wasn't just Wilson, but there were pockets that we don't want to change. Again, do you have an opinion on that? Well, again, I think it's people, I I understand the rural people's uh, concern. 
if you have to wait for the sun to get up, it's not only just to see uh, you're, when you're plowing the fields or whatever you're doing. They also tell me that they need the sun to dry off the dew from uh, the crops that they're, that they're harvesting. And so they really need the, the, heat, the heat and the light of the sun. And so they have to wait. And yet they have to now be in safe. For example, if you have cows that you have to milk and the, and the uh, milk train is running an hour early, you have to do that. And so you may have to start milking your cows in the dark, uh, which, of course, they weren't used to. Uh, so they were against it. So that, I thought it was reasonable that they were. And what happened was between World War One and World War Two, uh, it was optional for uh, every city or town or state to have it. And a few cities, a few states had it. But it wasn't that popular. Usually urban areas like New York City and, and, and Northeast uh, states had it, but not much else. And it wasn't until World War II that it became uh, in the United States prevalent again. For the same reason, it happened in World War I. This book is not just about DST. You have a story or two, David, about traveling by stagecoach and entering five different cities where the time is different at each location in the same afternoon. Well, that was in the 1800s. That wasn't, that was, that was, Right. That was before time zones were put. And yes, and that that was true. That was how well, that's why they wanted eventually came up with time zones because uh each town had its own time. Originally, up to the mid-1800s, every city and town uh made noontime when the sun was the highest in the sky. So if a town was uh 50 or 100 miles to the east or west, and the sun takes that amount of time to go uh over the second city. Uh, that city would be maybe five or 10 minutes uh, different in time than the first city. And that's what happened all over the country. And it became very confusing, especially when you had new fast things like railroads and telegraph uh, that you didn't have before. It didn't used to matter if every town had its different uh, time. Um, but it did when you had, ra- when you had try to have a, t- uh, try to have a uh, railroad uh, schedule and you try to send a telegraph to someone you wouldn't know what their uh, time was in their city. So eventually uh, the time zones were put in and that, uh, that, that happened uh, in the 1880s. This is a book that has to me about three inflection points. And one of those inflection points is the introduction of time zones. So if right. we can just back up okay, to, what sure. to what we're talking about, is it fair to say that the industrial revolution and the railroads were really the, the ones responsible for the introduction of time zones? Yes. In fact, what happened was, uh, as I said, it was it was a problem for the railroads to have a timetable. Right. Because, because the time in every town was different. And so you couldn't tell by looking at the timetable how long it took you to get from A to B because A and B would have different times to begin with. So A might be, you know, one city might be 15 minutes or half an hour different. So when you saw the time, the train took, you know, 40 minutes to get there. Was it 40 minutes or was it 55 or was it 25? It depends on which way you're going east or west. So it became very confusing. So what happened originally was in, well, it started in, in Europe and in, in, in smaller geographic countries like, like uh, UK and uh, France, the railroads decided no matter what everybody else did, we're going to have one time for all the railroads. And in the, in UK, they picked the uh, London time. In France, they pick Rouen time, not Paris time for some reason, which I never understood. But anyway, they had one time for the, all the railroads, even though the cities had their own time. And But when the U.S., you couldn't do that because it was too big to have one time for the whole country. So a guy named Charles Dowd came up with the idea of having four time zones uh, about every 15 degrees apart. Because if you take 24 hours around the Earth and 360 degrees Every hour is about 15 degrees of um, longitude. So anyway, that was his proposal. The railroad said, well, that's okay, except we have railroads that are some, would be in two different time zones. If we just move the the boundary a little bit, that'll all be in one time zone. That'll be much easier for the railroad. So the railroads uh, changed the time zone, and then the railroads put it in for themselves. In 1883, they said that I don't care what anyone else does. We're going to have four time zones. For rail, and that's going to be railroad time, and that's what happened. And uh, 
What happened was after that, even though it was unofficial, because the railroads were such a big part of the country and so powerful, uh, people started using railroad time as local time. And so railroad time eventually became local time. And so that's how the time zone spread. But they weren't official until 1918. So there was a, like uh, 30 years or more when the railroads were using railroad time, but officially uh, every city could pick their own time. I once, a few years ago, actually many few years ago, I was doing due diligence for a manufacturing acquisition somewhere in Tennessee. The hotel I stayed in was in one time zone. The company I went to work at to do this due diligence was in another time zone. And I'm trying to relate to the people who live in one time zone, work in another but even before that, again, I can't relate to no standardization of time whatsoever. Uh, before we move on, I've got a note to myself. I didn't know when or where to ask you this question, but you brought up a section of the book that I found fascinating. It's the concept of mean time. What is it? Most people know what that is, but what's the why behind that? Well, it's really the question of what is meantime? People, when they hear meantime, they don't know what the what that means. And mean in this sense, the, the definition, one of the definitions of the word mean is average. And what it means is average time. And here's what happened. This was, well, well, let me just go back one and say, one of the questions people have about daylight saving time is it's artificial. Why should we have an artificial time? The answer is, We've already had artificial time two other times, and daylight saving time is really the third artificial uh, time uh, uh, that we use. Uh, but each one is supposed to be beneficial. What happened was when clocks, when mechanical clocks came in, which was uh, in 13, 14, 15, 1600s, um, ter- it turned out that. Each the clocks would, of course, go around the same time every day. But it turns out, which most people don't realize, every day is not 24 hours. It turns out that uh, throughout the year, the length of the day changes from about plus or minus 10 minutes or 15 minutes from 24 hours. So some days are 23 hours and 55 minutes. Some days are 24 hours and 10 minutes. And it slowly, gradually changes over 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 the year, and it's a well known uh, it's a well known uh, phenomenon, and everybody knew that. Uh, well, it, I should say it became even more well known. Uh, it's called the equation of time. But anyway, it, it was known that that happened, but it didn't bother anybody except when you when you put a so when you put in a, a clock that's a, an electric uh, not electric but an automated clock it. Uh, is going to go around the same amount of time every day. And you don't want to have to change it by two minutes, three minutes every day. So they said, why don't we just take the average of all the days of the year and make that equal to 24 hours and make every day that length? And that's what mean time means. And so mean time was adopted as a way not to have to change the clocks. And so the mean time was used all over the world. The only vestige of that name is when you hear Greenwich mean time, but that's what mean time means. So that was the first artificial change of time because now you were, your, your clock was not really going, your sun, the sun was not necessarily directly overhead at noontime, might be five or 10 minutes off. Then the second was the putting in of the time zones as we talked about. And then the third is daylight saving time. But all of those are artificial, but all of those uh, are p- proposed to have a, a improvements to the, and there's a reason to do that at all. I want to move into another opinion question, if I may ask. Okay. Uh, you, sure. You can deflect if you want. So in our, when I say our country, we have people all around the, the world listening. So in the United States, we have some areas that do not recognize daylight savings time. <sighs> So I'm calling it scattered daylight savings time. Should everyone be required to be on daylight savings time? Or do you think? Well, in the United States, 
Now, of course, there are some countries in the world that have and some and some don't. M- m- most many of them have it. Um, there's different reasons why, why a, a country may or may not want to have, or a, a, a state may or may not want to have daylight savings. What happened was in World War II, the uh, United States put in year-round daylight saving time for the war effort, as which was similar to what happened in World War I. And it was very useful for those purposes. By the way, it also allowed people to come home after work and have an extra hour to plant victory gardens, which were gardens that people would grow uh, fruits and vegetables in addition to help the war effort. And so they had more time to do that kind of thing as well, besides the fact that it saved energy. But anyway, when World War II ended, the same thing happened as happened after World War I in the U.S. And uh, the rural people didn't like it, and Congress got rid of it as a national uh, and as national law. But what happened was, after World War II, a lot, of, a lot of parts of the country decided they did like daylight saving time. But at that time, the law was as any city or any state could put it in for themselves. Well, so in the 1940s, after the war and the 1950s into the early 1960s, some cities had daylight saving time, some didn't. Some states had daylight saving time, some didn't. It was all at local option. And they could start and end it whenever they want. So you might have a city that has daylight saving time. Neighboring city has it, but starting and ending at different dates. And a third neighboring city doesn't. Like a very confusing situation. So... He had, for example, there was a time when St. Paul had daylight saving time and Minneapolis didn't. That was one of my favorite stories, by the way. Go ahead, David. Yes, which was, was, I mean, I go into the book in detail about how that affected people, but it was very interesting because, as we know, the the Twin Cities. There was also one year when in Iowa there were 23 different starting and ending dates of daylight saving time in different cities. So if you were going to a city that was, or a town that was, you know, 30 miles away, you might have no idea what the time is. I mean, you may know the one, the time of the neighboring areas where you are, but you may not know. So near the transition date, you don't know if they've already gone on daylight saving time or they haven't or they don't use it at all. So it was very confused. So 1966, the federal government put in a law, which is the still basically the current law. And that law says that every state could have daylight saving time if it wants to. If it does, it has to be uh, statewide, with some exceptions, but basically statewide. And uh, also, the federal government would set the starting and ending date. And anyone who had daylight savings, they would all start and end in the same date. So you wouldn't get the confusion of different starting and ending dates. That's the law we have now. What happened was it spread throughout the country and on and off. Some states had it, some didn't. But now we have 48 states have daylight saving time. And two don't. But the two have very real reasons why it's reasonable not to. So you got to, you got, that's why we have these exceptions. I talk about those two. Hawaii doesn't have daylight saving time. But Hawaii, first of all, as you know, is very isolated. So when you go there, you're going to have to change your watch anyway, wherever, wherever you come from. But also, it's the most southern state. People don't think of it that way, but it's the closest that's closest to the equator. And when it's close to the equator, um, Near the equator, the sun rises and sets the same every day of the year. So you don't need anything like daylight saving time right on the equator because you have every day the sun rises 6 a.m. and sets at 6 p.m. in all countries around the world. So Hawaii, being close to the equator, it's close to that. So it has less of a benefit of daylight saving time, and it's isolated, so it decided not to do it. The interesting case in the in the continental 48 U.S. is Arizona. Arizona is the only state right now that doesn't have daylight saving time. But here's the reason why. In Arizona, the two biggest cities and the biggest uh, population areas are Phoenix and Tucson. And they get super hot in the summer, uh, over 100 degrees, as you mean, 110 or more. So they say the last thing we want in the summer is more daylight. It's 110. We wait for the sun to go down, and then we go outdoors. Because it may cool down to 80 or 90, but at least it's not 110. So they are waiting for the sun to go down. So whereas the rest of the country loves having an extra hour of daylight in the summer to stay outdoors on a beautiful summer uh, evening, in Arizona, and at least in the populated areas, the most populated areas of Arizona, 
They don't. They, they're waiting for the sun to go down. It cools off a little bit and they can get outside. And note, for example, that issue does not impact its neighboring state of New Mexico because the two biggest cities of New Mexico are up in the mountains, Santa Fe and Albuquerque. And so they don't have the same kind of uh, super hot summers that they have in uh, Phoenix and Tucson. So so Arizona has a unique case, and so it, it made its own decision. Of course, it causes a lot of uh, confusion sometimes because airline schedules and TV stations and other things like that all get changed because the rest of the country changes to daylight saving time in Arizona doesn't. But they're willing to accept that inconvenience because they don't want the, uh, an extra hour of very hot uh, summer sun. And that's why this book is so interesting, all of these interesting, fascinating uh, facts. I, I, by the way, I want to say thank you. All the quotes that you include at the beginning of every chapter, I wrote several of them down. Here's my favorite. And this should be on a plaque somewhere. It says, the clock, not the steam engine, is the key machine of the modern industrial age. And I see you nodding. What a yeah. tremendous line that is. And and this one's funny. Uh, Victor Borge, I think that's how you say his name. I don't don't mind going back to daylight savings time. With inflation, the hour will be the only thing I've saved all year. And and that's we need a drum roll uh, for that. Uh, The other thing I was thinking, too, when I finish your book, this may be the first time I try to reach out and find out who is in charge of talks at Google. I enjoy those videos more than I do most TED Talks. TED Talks are great, but the talks at Google, some of them are great. I probably listen to maybe 15, 18, 20 of them. I'm going to find who's in charge of scheduling guests, and I'm going to promote you. I'm going to say you need to listen. Uh, and, And so if you get a call, it'll be because of me. Okay, well, I really appreciate that. It's very nice of you. If, so before we wrap up, how how is the book going? Uh, I know you've been on a lot of shows, uh, presentations. I, I'm assuming you've been busy recently. Well, it amazed me because I had written some technical books and uh, computer science, artificial intelligence books. And, you know, maybe one person would review it and I might get one call about it. And that's about it. Uh, this is a topic that comes up twice a year without me doing anything, which is, makes it very, very nice. I don't have to do anything. And all of a sudden, a week or so before daylight saving time changes in the spring and the fall, I start to get contact from uh, from newspapers, uh, TV, radio, uh, podcasts, uh, websites, everything. And uh, it's it's been fascinating for me. Uh, it's uh, when I... Uh, as you may know, the Senate passed a law in um, March to have daylight saving time year round. It never got passed by this House, and with the new Congress, that 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 passage is going to be uh, eliminated, and they're going to have to start from scratch. But anyway, when that happened, in the next following week, in in one week, I had twenty seven interviews. I'm not surprised, from, you know, and from you know from New York Times and PBS and NBC and. All those kind of things. So it's it's been uh, really un, unexpected and and a lot of fun, and I enjoy it a lot. Um, I should tell you, by the way, because I because people ask me what's my opinion of this uh, proposal, and so I should tell your uh, listeners that at least they get my opinion of it. My opinion of of uh, ch- people don't like changing the clock. Clearly, it's uh, unpleasant to do. And in the spring, it's really not the spring, by the way, but it, in 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 now it's early March before the spring. But um, uh, the the early March uh, change of daylight saving time, uh, you lose an hour of sleep, and nobody likes that. And there are some negative effects of people losing sleep for the first day or two. But the gain of doing that is that you have daylight saving time for eight months of the year. And standard time for four months. Well, why would you want that? Well, daylight saving time is a lot of benefits in the spring, summer, and fall. 
and almost no negatives because there's so much daylight in the summer day, for example. In a lot of places, the sun rises at 4 or 5 a.m. So if you move the clock up an hour, so instead of 5 a.m. at 6 a.m., it's still before most people wake up. It doesn't really affect anything in the morning, but it gives you an extra hour of daylight in the evening. The problem is when you have daylight saving time in the winter, January, February, uh, when you take that, when you if you had daylight saving time, you would start to get very dark mornings. And a lot of people don't like waking up in the dark, going to work in the dark, sending their kids, kids to school. Kids, yep. And in fact, in 1974, when there was an energy crisis, uh, the federal government put in year-round daylight saving time for two years just to help for the energy crisis. But what happened was the first year that it uh, was in effect in January 1974, it became so unpopular because people all over the country didn't like getting up in the dark and specifically sending their kids to school on dark streets or waiting on for buses on dark roads, that it became very unpopular very quickly. And even though it was only a two-year plan, it was repealed after one year. So we have tried having uh, year-round daylight saving time. We did try it in 74, and it was very unpopular. So I say the present system isn't perfect. It's unpleasant to change that hour. And the, the way to do something about it is to try to minimize the, the loss of that hour by telling people uh, maybe a week in advance, daylight saving time is going to come in a week. Next uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning, you're going to lose an hour of sleep. So maybe you should start to go to sleep a little earlier the day or two before. Maybe you don't plan anything very late that Saturday night. Maybe sleep late that Sunday morning. And hopefully people, if they plan for it, could get over it, which is what people do when you switch time zones, on, when you go uh, on a trip and you switch time zones. You know you're going to a place where the time zone is different. You may uh, change your sleep pattern in advance to try to uh, take care of that or maybe not plan to have activities in the early morning in a place where you're going to lose an hour of sleep. So that's, I think that would maybe minimize some of those transition problems. But I do think that the current system is much better than either of the alternatives, which would be to have winter daylight saving time, winter standard time all year, which would take away all the benefits of daylight saving time in the summer, or to have daylight saving time all year, which would give you these very dark mornings. Places like uh, New York and 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 uh, Chicago would have sunrises at 8.30. Places like Detroit and Minneapolis would have sunrises at 9 a.m. So everybody's, if it's sunrise 9 a.m., everybody's getting up in the dark. And that would happen in many places around the country. So anyway, that's my opinion of the current system. I say it has problems, but it's better than the alternative. I am sure if Benjamin Franklin could hear your answer, he'd be nodding in agreement. <laughs> he might have said, no, wait a minute. I was going to say that. <laughs> I the, the last question, and I want to I, I want to give you a little uh, pretext here. Recently, I had on Lindsay Weber. She is a gifted, very talented financial modeler. She has an engineering background, and I ran into her through a software vendor uh, that I use. And I thought, man, she is a great communicator. Oh, by the way, the reason you've got 20 some odd interviews, here's how the sausage is made. When you're a good communicator, producers think we've got to get this guy on. So you are always going to be at the top list during daylight savings time because you are, by the way, a great, great communicator. I, I'm yeah. enjoying listening to you, but, but back to Lindsay. So at the very end, I asked Lindsay, what are some of your favorite books? Well, first she said, well, here's what I'm reading right now. Uh, she said, Mark, I really, really like Seize the Daylight. So by the way, I read a lot of the books that authors mention, mm -hmm. or she's not an author. She's a practitioner. I wrote it down and I would say two days later, I bought it I didn't have time to read it, but I read the first chapter before I knew it. All of my other books were put aside. I just, I read it within three days. So very good book. And that's, the, that's the pretext for this question. It allows me to find out what I should be reading. So what are some of your favorite books? I know you're a reader. Yes. Well, uh, 
my avocation, in addition to everything else, is travel. And I love to travel. I've gone to over 80 countries around the world. And uh, and I love to do that. It's uh, something I, I do. Well, anyway, a lot of my reading when I do the travel has to do with the country I'm going to. I think it's good to, for background. Fiction or nonfiction. Because sometimes fiction gives you a flavor for the country even more than than nonfiction. So I read both. So I was thinking of that question, and I thought of three books that I read due to travel, which I thought which I thought were really interesting. One of my all time favorites is a book by Alan Drury, called, uh, who's a novelist called "A God Against the Gods." A God Against by Alan D R U R Y, and uh, he wrote several other famous books. But anyway, this is a book about ancient Egypt. And he goes into the court of the pharaohs of the 18th dynasty. And it's fascinating because, you know, you think about uh, palace intrigues in the in Europe in the 1800s, maybe, but you don't necessarily think about that kind of thing happening in ancient Egypt, but it did. And so it talks about the uh, the uh, interaction between the pharaoh and his different family members, uh, some of which were uh you know in line for the throne uh his advisors the priesthood which had certain so it's really a very interesting uh insight and he does it in a very interesting writing format in that he has uh a section of the book uh written from the viewpoint of one character and then it stops and then the next section was written from the viewpoint of a second character which may be complete. So he's talking about some incident that the first character was talking about, but from a whole different viewpoint. He agrees with it or disagrees with it or doesn't know what happened. And, and the whole book is a series of viewpoints of different characters, but it does t- wind up telling a story in, in sequence. Anyways, very interestingly written. So I, I love that book uh, and a great insight into ancient Egypt, uh, much more than you would. And he, what he did was he got, took all the information that he could find. That's known, and then he, he uh, as a novelist, filled in the rest uh, to make it an interesting story. So, anyway, a great book, I thought. When I went to Argentina, I read a book. Uh, you might know the title because it became a movie. There's the Secret in Their Eyes, excellent book. Uh, it's by uh, Eduardo Sacchi, S A C H E R I, written, of course, in Spanish. And translated, the translation is excellent. Is That's it? what I'm going to mention. Okay. Translated. Translated, the, the translation I read was by John Cullen, C U L L E N. And I thought it was an excellent translation because it was in colloquial, very colloquial English. Um, anyway, it's about a, uh, it's a long story, very, but very interesting about a uh, retired court clerk in Buenos Aires who got, who started looking into an old murder case that he had been involved with 25 years ago. Uh, it became uh, an Argentinian, an Argentinian made it into a film, and it became the Oscar-winning film for the best foreign film. And then Hollywood made a version of it as well. So there's actually two versions of books of films based on this book: the Argentinian version, which is uh, of course in Spanish. Um, was uh as I said, one best foreign Oscar for best foreign film, excellent. So I, uh, I and I was reading reviews of the of the movies. Most people like the Argentinian version better. Okay, and the American version, but the American version is probably good as well. Uh, but the book is excellent. Third book I'm going to mention quickly. When I went to uh, China, I read a book by Shen Tong T O N G S H E N. T-O-N-G, called Almost a Revolution. And Shen Tang was a student who was involved in the Tiananmen, pro- Tiananmen Square protests in 1989. And so he gives a very detailed description of how it started, how it went, how it was uh, it was uh, overwhelmed by the, uh, the government. And it was very interesting to read before going to China. But now it would even be more interesting to read because they're starting to have protests again in China, really for the first time in 30 years since those other protests. And this is an inside view of that first protest in 1989, which uh, didn't. uh, That's why it's called Almost a Revolution, because it obviously didn't succeed. But anyway, very interesting book. So those are three books that I 
that I thought of that uh, that you might be interested in. This may be an unfair question. Can I ask you one of your favorite countries that you have been to? Or is it too hard to, you may say, well, mark all of them? Oh, and some of them, well, some of them were more unusual for people to go to. Now, the one interesting place I went to was Easter Island, which is the most isolated uh, place in the world in that it's the it's the place that is the furthest from the next uh, civilization, from the, the next civilized area. I mean, there's no, it's an island in the middle of the Pacific and it's not near anything else. It's owned by Chile. And uh, it's, of course, the place where they have those big stone heads called Moai. And you've probably seen pictures of them. And uh, so it's really a fascinating place. They have their own culture, even though they're controlled by Chile. They have very few uh, tourists, basically. And these stone heads are amazing. One of the most amazing things is how did they move them? Nobody really knows because they, they're 30 feet high, solid stone, and they move them all the way across the island from, from the place where they were quarried to the place that they wanted them to be. And anyway, very interesting place. So that was a very interesting and unusual place to go to. And, and I really enjoyed that. David, I cannot thank you enough. The book is great. Seize the daylight. I've enjoyed this. I said it before. You are a gifted, very articulate communicator. So thank you for being part of our show. Well, it's been a lot of fun, Mark. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. David Perrault also has another book, Saving the Daylight. Did you know, according to PBS, 6 and 10 are in favor of year-round daylight savings time or DST. And then there is also Scott Yates probably the biggest critic of clock changing twice a year. And he has a blog dedicated to his mission. So whether you like DST or not, David's book, it's fascinating as it provides history and context around the three forms of artificial time as we know it today, mean time, time zones, and daylight savings time. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. Thank you for listening. Thank you.